Good morning. Uh, the text today comes from John 19, 1 through 16. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I found no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So Pilate heard these words. He brought Jesus out and sat down on the, on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Now I'm going to read actually a prayer of illumination, which is just a prayer asking for the Spirit to be with us as we seek to understand his word. It comes from uh, George Herbert. It says, O Lord, make your word a swift word, passing from ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation. That as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. Being a judge is hard. Being a politician is hard. Pilots both. I think the hardest thing about being a, uh, a judge or what a judge does is, you know, he has to sentence people whenever they're found guilty. How do you get the right balance? You have to come up with this right punishment for the crime and whatever else you might say about crime. You can't really pay it back. You can't really make everything exactly the way it was before. And so what the judge has to do is, as, the, as there's an injustice to try to answer that with justice, a just response, you're not going to make it perfect. You just want the, the scales of justice to get as close as you can. You're just not going to be able to stick the landing. We don't live in that kind of world. Just trying to find that right balance probably can't get it exactly right. It's imperfect, but it's a necessary imperfection if our society is going to function. It's not all hard, though. It's not even mostly hard. You know, if you're a judge, uh, your, your job, you're going to see the same things over and over. You get all kinds of cases, but you get things like repeat offenders and common crimes and, you know, the assessment of property damage so that you can do the restitution and whatnot. So it's not like a judge isn't going to get practice. You'd sort of know, I'm going to do this kind of thing with this case, and I'm going to do that kind of thing with that case. Uh, I've seen it a hundred times before. You know, kind of no sweat on most of it. 
But what would you do in a case if you're a judge? It's a first offense, you know, if the defendant is actually found guilty. But it's, it's a huge, and I mean a huge crime. And it's also a less common crime. Right? Not something that you see all the time. So you're not going to have all that practice that you've had before. That's what Pilate is dealing with in the case of Jesus. Normally in a case like, like the one before him, and represented by Jesus, if there wasn't much evidence, but at least there was some, a little bit to go on, and you could tell that the defendant's intentions were bad, you know, the requisite mens rea was there, the guilty mind was there. You just have them executed. You see it like that, you see a little bit to go on and, you know, have them executed. No sweat. Capital, you know, and the idea is capital crime, uh, you did it or tried or wanted to, you die. How hard is that? Except, in the case of Jesus, there really is no evidence of blasphemy or insurrection. Blasphemy, by the way, is just the highest form of insurrection whenever you think about it. What do you do if you're Pilate in that case? You've got a capital uh, case before you. And what you can do is you can rough him up a bit and put him out there to the crowd um, who's watching and demanding all the way, but otherwise there's not much of a way forward. It's a capital offense. See what I'm saying? You don't give somebody a partial death penalty. It's all or nothing. You either put them on the block or you don't. It's a zero-sum game, it's all or nothing. It's the tough spot for a judge to be in, especially when he's looking for a way to land somewhere in the middle, somewhere that'll make people go, yeah, I guess it's probably okay. It's about the best you could do in a situation like this with all the nuances. Nobody's going to do that in the case of Jesus, not somewhere in the middle, not one person. Pilate is also a politician, also a hard job. Uh, you want to keep your boss happy, and the best way, his boss is Caesar, and the best way to keep Caesar happy is to keep the Jews quiet. Now, Rome really didn't understand the Jewish people. Rome didn't really try very hard to understand the Jewish people, but that didn't mean there weren't expectations. You know, you get, it's kind of the marching, what are the expectations? What are the marching orders for someone like Pilate? Listen, keep all these unhappy people happy. And you know that, that group that's so often loud and frustrated, keep them quiet. He's caught in the middle. I mean, Caesar wants it quiet, and the Jews want blood, and whatever else you might say about blood, blood is not quiet. And that's where Pilate is. Funny thing is, uh, neither of those things is actually the biggest thing. You try to put yourself in the mind of Pilate, and you might, you know, you might think that that's the way he sees it. You know, what do I do with this messy, impossible case? You know, everyone's watching and demanding, right on the verge of a riot here. That's my job. I'm not supposed to allow that kind of thing to happen. That's not the biggest thing. The Jews are not the biggest thing. Uh, whatever sort of uprising or response might follow from, from Jesus' disciples is certainly not the biggest thing. Even Caesar is not the biggest thing. The biggest thing is the man before him. And Pilate has no idea who he is. He looks at him, he says, where are you from? Where are you from? 
he wouldn't believe it if Jesus told him. As a matter of fact, Jesus already had. So my kingdom is not of this world. You got to keep in mind the passage that we looked at is really part two. It's part two of Jesus' case before Pilate. Pilate didn't normally live in Jerusalem. Uh, he was required to be there, though, uh, in, in Jerusalem. He had headquarters there, and so he had place to stay. And where he conducted his business as the prefect or the governor, um, you know, operating for Rome, Rome's uh, representative there. But he had to be there during busy times. Busy times were dangerous times. Busy times were turbulent times. And the week of Passover, it's certainly going to qualify. A lot of people there, a lot of turmoil, a lot of political unrest and whatnot. So that qualified, so he had to be in town. And part of Pilate's job is to keep everything quiet. You know, no riots, no crazy business, you keep it down, that kind of thing. But another part of Pilate's job was to, you know, recognize and uh, adjudicate and even execute the local law. So if the Jews came up with something in this case, it would be appropriate for them to take it to the the local Roman authority to carry it out, whatever the punishment might be. Certainly the death penalty, because they couldn't do that on their own. So they bring Jesus to Pilate for execution. After Pilate interviews Jesus, he tells the Jews, I I don't think this guy is guilty at all. Right? I I don't see any, I find no guilt in him. It's something that Pilate keeps saying all the way through this trial, if you want to call it that. Uh, he even offers a way out. They had this custom that at, at Passover, every year, they would, Pilate would pardon somebody. You know, who you want? I'll pardon somebody. It was a, it was a good gesture on Rome's part, kind of made it like ease the, uh, any of the attention or whatnot. But the crowd doesn't want Jesus. No go. They, they want a criminal instead. And that brings us to our passage. If you just hit this part right in the middle of, or right towards the end of the Gospel of John, you would, you would almost think Jesus is a little bit, he's the occasion, but he's not really being talked about a lot. He just makes kind of a cameo, an important cameo in the middle of it. But you've got Pilate, and you've got the Jews, and this guy is in the middle. He's the, the occasion for all the hubbub. You know, there's this, all this turbulence, and it's around this guy, and the, the Pilate's on one side, and the Jews are, and the Jewish leaders are on the other And that's our passage. It's not ultimately about Pilate, but the focus is there, you know. And the reason is this. When when John is writing this, you look at Pilate and he's in a mess. Everywhere he turns, his hands are full. It's like too much. And so he's obviously, it doesn't matter which way he goes, what he tries to do, he's going to drop something. You know, like justice. Like justice. And that's what he does. He, his first efforts here uh, in our passage is to try to challenge the Jews' charge against Jesus. Right? He's kicking the tires. You're saying this, or what are you saying? And how do we understand all of this? But it starts by saying this. If you look at verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. That's how it starts. This is very interesting. I mean, you know, whenever you're just looking at the flow of the narrative, and the, and the reason, okay, that, that Pilate uh, uh, took Jesus and flogged him and almost certainly means that he had him flogged, like the soldiers did it under his orders, you know, that kind of thing, but that's not what jumps out at you. If you're just reading the Gospel of John straight through, and then all of a sudden you come to, quote, then Pilate had him flogged. 
Interesting. Weird. Upside down. Just three verses before, chapter 18, verse 38, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. And then here, he had him flogged. Is that an upside-down world? Is that what we normally do in, uh, you know, whenever we're seeking justice? You know, what's up with this guy? He's guilty. Let's throw him a party. This guy is not guilty. Let's, let's whoop him, right, in the name of justice. That's not really what's going on here. It's a strategy. It's a strategy. It says he's challenging them, and he sees this hungry Jewish crowd out there to get Jesus. Crucify him, crucify him. What Pilate does initially, it looks like, is he tries appeasement. You know, somewhere in the middle. Let's see if we can get this to uh, satisfy them. So abuse Jesus, mock Jesus, prayed him out in front of the Jews with a torturous crown of thorns. Those thorns are probably, you know, longer than I'm showing you. Some of them could be upward of a foot long. A mock robe. What's he doing? Jesus, obviously nothing, right? Is it, uh, you know, what Pilate does to parade him out like that, all beat up and in this mock royal appearance. And he says in verse 5, behold the man. Look, you see him? He's nothing. He's nothing. He's a joke. He's no threat. And that's what Pilate says, you know, that's why he says in verse 4, I find no guilt in him. Whatever you're charging him up with, you know, whatever you're looking at, uh, he doesn't fit that. And so, um, you know, he tries appeasement. We'll, we'll beat him up, we'll mock him, we'll make him look ridiculous, and maybe that'll satisfy the crowd. But for a strategy of appeasement to work, you know, the people you want to appease have to be appeased. And the Jews are not appeased. They just keep demanding crucify him has to be crucified here's a little commentary on this part so far a little aside in the exposition i'm not going to do this much but i'm going to do it here what does it mean this part the mockery you know whenever you see this why does john include this why is it part of the whole thing well it's important this is part of jesus atoning work too what he bears we just sang about it by the way that he bears our sin and shame. Um, It's a pastor scholar who's passed away, gone to be with the Lord now, a guy named John Stott. I've read a fair amount, but one in his book, The Cross of Christ, it's an older book, but if you ever have a chance to come across it and read it, it's definitely worth your time, The Cross of Christ. But in it, towards the end, he says this. Now, keep in mind, it's The Cross of Christ. It's what Jesus did. He says, quote, this in your handout. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as, quote, God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? See what he's saying, right? You know how people can be like, there's no way I could believe in God. Oh, the life I live, how could he understand? How could he understand my life and what I go through and how hard it's been and all the questions I have and all the unfairness, the injustices I've had to absorb? How, how would I ever relate to God more? How would God ever relate to me? Right? Who does he think he is, as a matter of fact? He has no idea what it's like to walk in my shoes. If he does exist, there he sits, up in heaven, 
untouchable. He's unhurtable. You look to Jesus. What's the answer to that? You look to Jesus, the cross of Christ. What do you see? See the innocent bullied and abused and exposed and mocked and ridiculed. Jesus in that moment was their fury. He was their fun. He was their sport. You, You look at Jesus and what do you see? In the real world of pain, as John Stott referred to it. Behold, God the initiated. The God who knows. Jesus bore it all. He knows. He took it all on, and he did it when he didn't have to. Now, you might question what God has done about evil, though the answer is there, and it's beyond what you might have the right to expect, or I might have the right to expect. But you can't see what Jesus went through and say that God doesn't understand the pain of evil. Dare I say, he understands it better than you do. Because not only did he take it on, he took it on without ever once participating in evil himself. And none of us can say that. He's borne your griefs and pain and shame as well as your sin. So yeah, he knows what it's like. Anyway, the offer to appease the crowd. You know, Pilate's trying to, that's why he hasn't beaten. That's why he's, it's this, uh, this show to ridicule him and present him that way to make a spectacle out of him. But it doesn't work. And what Pilate does then is he, he transitions to try argument. The end of verse 6, all the way through verse 8. And you know, when he says, I find no guilt in this man, it looks like what he's trying to say is, hey, everybody, I'm the guy from Rome, right? And since I'm the guy from Rome, I'm the say-so guy. I'm the boss. And so you brought Jesus uh, to trial, and I'm rendering my verdict. Not guilty. There you have it. That's my answer. And they keep not taking his answer. You know, you brought him to trial, and I'm saying not guilty. Leave me out of it. It doesn't work. Notice what they say in uh, verse 7. We have a law. We have a law. They're probably referring to Leviticus 24.16. And that's a, uh, it's a, a law against blasphemy, and it's a capital offense. Somebody blasphemes, uh, they're supposed to be put to death. Now, I'm going to read it, so just to, but there are elements to any sort of crime. And this is what it says. It says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, capital N, shall be put to death. The Jews are, in effect, saying, listen, we have the law, and this law requires death, and since we, you know, we would if we could, but we can't execute anybody, that's, you've got to do that for us. That's your role. Your job is to enforce our law. So Pilate... You can't get out of this. We have a law. You're bound. Now, a couple of problems with what they say. One of those is that what Jesus does doesn't actually fit the elements of the crime. You know, you have to prove all the elements if you're going to prosecute a case. Now, the the main reason it doesn't fit the elements of the crime is that Jesus didn't (laughs) commit any crime at all. But there's another problem with it, too. And and that's that what they say, uh, look in verse 7. What is the blasphemy? We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he, look at this, made himself out to be the Son of God. Made himself to be the Son of God. Just saying that, in and of itself, this is the second problem with it, isn't necessarily blasphemous. 
wasn't necessarily a stoning offense. There are other cases in the New Testament where that's been done. But there's a better argument than that. Like, what's a good defense if you refer to yourself as the Son of God? Like, hey, I was out of my mind, or, um, you know, I was quoting somebody else, or something like that, you know? I think the best defense is if you actually are the Son of God. Right? You can't be guilty of impersonating the Son of God if you are the Son of God. I think that's what they call an absolute defense in law. Anyway, whenever they come to, to Pilate, they make this move. We have a law. You have to enforce this law. It seems to work on Pilate. You know, we can't do the execution part. He's got to maintain it. What it says in verse 8 about Pilate's mindset is he was even more afraid. More afraid. Now, uh, this could be taken in different ways, but that's not the important part for our purposes. The important part is that when it comes to this power struggle, Pilate is having with the Jewish authorities and the Jewish followers of those authorities. He doesn't like the position he finds himself in. He's getting worried. It's getting worse. This is not going well. Um, his job is about keeping the peace, try to stick the landing somewhere in the middle, and whatever else is going on, that's not what's going on. Once he heard it, he's more afraid. Kind of, what do I do? I've tried appeasement, I've tried argument. And what he does is he goes back inside uh, to talk to Jesus again. You know, he had been outside arguing with the Jews. And if you remember uh, from last week, they would not go inside because that would, we could pass over. They would, it would defile them to go inside and to be in contact with a Gentile like Pilate. Ironically, a lot of irony in the Gospel of John, what they're doing outside is definitely defiling them, you know. Uh, but anyway, Pilate's outside arguing with the Jews. He's not getting anywhere, and he decides to go back inside. That's where Jesus is, and he's going to interview him the second time. Um, maybe to try to come up with, a, like, is there something else? I'm out of good ideas. Maybe I can talk to Jesus and figure something out, another angle. Verse 9. Pilate asked Jesus where he's from. Where are you from? This is an interesting question in the Gospel of John. Where are you from? You might even say that just about everything turns on this question. If you're going to understand who Jesus is, you probably ought to know where he's from. We sort of relate to this, right? You hear somebody talk sometimes and you're like, you know, if they've got a deep, southern kind of twang right they uh they say god you know the name of god but it's like three syllables you're like you're not from around here are you right i can i can hear you're from somewhere else or that unmistakable new york accent or something like that somebody with a quote-unquote foreign accent you know you hear it and where they're from informs an awful lot of how they operate so we're used to that kind of question but Pilate asks jesus where are you from anyway Where is Jesus from? If you start with the Gospel of John, how does it start? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's where Jesus is from. Matter of fact, the Jews uh, don't like what Jesus uh, does. They don't agree with what Jesus is doing. But he keeps asserting that he's been sent by the Father, that he's from the Father. And then he keeps doing things inconveniently for their purposes to corroborate that he is from the Father. That's where he's from. Right? Easy answer. 
Where are you from, Jesus? I'm from the Father. I'm with God, right? I'm, you're looking. Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. Easy answer, but Jesus doesn't answer Pilate. In verse 9, we just pointed out that this isn't the first time uh, Pilate interviewed Jesus in John's Gospel. The first time is back in chapter 18, verses 33 and 38. Now Pilate's trying to interview Jesus again, and it says, in verse 9, Jesus, quote, gave him no answer. Right? Gave him the stiff arm. The nonverbal. Now, why? Why would he do that? Well, I think part of the reason is because of how that first interview went. Let me recap. Pilate, are you a king? Jesus, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world. Now listen. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate, what is truth? Translation. What are you, a child or something? Truth? You think this is about truth? Are you that naive? This isn't about truth. This is about power. Pilate is not someone who will listen because he's not someone who's of the truth. So Jesus gave him no answer. Obviously, it irritates Pilate. It's one of the funny things about you can kind of see the psychology, the emotional state of Pilate as you walk through. It irritates him. You know, for the guy from Rome, he's sure having a hard time getting people to understand what a big deal he is. And so he goes on to tell Jesus what a big deal he is. Look at verse 10. This is Pilate talking to Jesus. You're not going to speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? See what he's saying? You don't know who you're talking to? I'm either your savior or I'm your judge. Funny. Like, not ha-ha funny, but ironic funny. A lot of irony in the Gospel of John. For one thing, whenever a guy like Pilate says that, don't you understand the situation you're in and who I am, the big deal that I am? I'm your Savior or I'm your judge. One, who's he talking to? Pilate, little Pilate, is explaining to the Savior and judge just how big of a deal he is. You know, that's kind of funny. That, uh, the replay of that at the judgment ought to be pretty rich. It's a little bit, it's even worse than me trying to explain math to somebody like Einstein, you know. The uh, second thing is, it only takes Pilate a couple of verses to prove that he's way less than advertised. Verse 10, here he is in verse 10, don't you understand what a big deal I am? And then it only takes the short distance to verse 12 for us to read. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews, dot, dot, dot. And so he didn't. That's who he really is. That's the real Pilate. And Jesus already knows this. Look at verse 11 with me. We're going to come back to this. But it, Jesus says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And it's worth pointing out a couple of things. Like I said, we'll come back to this. The first is the obvious one, right? Jesus sees right through Pilate. I know what you really are, Pilate. I know that you're not more than you think you are. Um, or, you know, you're not what you put yourself out to be. You, what you are and what you have has been granted to you. 
you would have no authority at all unless it had been given. You have what you have because it's been given and you're only going to have it so long. That's it. That's all you are. But there's more than that. Something else. That word delivered, Jesus uses it in the second part. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. It keeps coming up in this part of the Gospel of John. Delivered. Delivered. You see it in uh, chapter 18, verse 30. Right? The Jews have arrested Jesus and they say, if he weren't guilty, we wouldn't have delivered him to you. That's what they do. In his interview with Jesus in verse 35, hey, listen, your own people delivered you over to me. And then here again in, in verse 11. And what, what Jesus is saying is, listen, the high priest was Caiaphas. The greater guilt is with Caiaphas, for sure. But you're culpable too, Pilate. It's the whole thing. Um, it gets, the, the narrative goes from this kind of uh, Pilate trying to appease the crowd and then argue with the crowd, the Jewish crowd and their, the leaders and whatnot. And he goes back and he's trying to work something out with Jesus and figure it out. And then the details, we don't know all the details, but what we can tell, right? It doesn't fine tune it that way. What we can tell is that eventually Pilate concedes to the Jews' demands. Uh, verse 12, right? He keeps trying, but the Jews change their argument. Looks like again. Look at what they say. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. It's a new charge. And with this new charge, there's a new threat that comes to Pilate. Um, it's, there's this kind of evolution in the quote-unquote charge of Jesus. It's like an arrest in search of a crime, right? We arrest him, now we've got to figure out what he did wrong. Um, so let me, let's just trace it real quick uh, in the text. And you can see this. Look at John 18, so the chapter before, verses 29 and 30. Pilate asked them, what accusation do you bring against this man? In other words, what's the charge? What's he guilty of? See, he doesn't know, he hasn't been following the story. What's he guilty of? Look at what they say. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Listen, if he weren't guilty, we wouldn't have arrested him. Don't you trust your local police officer? Right? And so there's really no charge there. And then by the time you get to our passage, it looks like it evolves into a kind of a religious charge. Look at verse 7. Right? We have this law and he ought to die because he's made himself out to be the son of God. Blasphemy. And then by the time you get to verse 12, it looks like it's evolved even more. It's, uh, it's kind of morphed into a political charge. He makes himself out to be a king, right? That's insurrection, and this is it. That's when you get to verse 12, that's where Pilate taps out. Verse 12, finally gives in. What is it about this last charge? Um, interesting in the terms of the context, they say, you are not a friend of Caesar, if you release Jesus, and the reason is because he claims to be a king, friend of Caesar. Now, the claim to be a king, uh, you know, was a threat that a person in Pilate's position as a friend of Caesar is supposed to address immediately and all that. And Jesus might only fit this designation technically. Remember his kingdom? Is it from around here? No, it's not of this world, right? You could see, you could see that he's not posing that kind of threat, but it's close enough for Pilate. For a couple of reasons, okay? Pilate's boss is a guy named Tiberius Caesar. Caesar's the title. 
Tiberius was well known to be impatient, kind of paranoid about his subordinates. And, you know, back then you had absolute authority. These days, you know, with all the law, if you don't like somebody who works for you, you might even have a hard time firing them, right? Letting them go. Back then, if you didn't like your subordinate and you had all that power, you just go like, I, I just think that guy needs to die. And then I'll replace him with somebody not dead, right? And see how that next guy does. And so if you were to look at Pilate, if you're just like a normal person approaching Pilate, you'd kind of think he's a big deal. And Pilate obviously would act like a big deal. And he was a big deal to all those people below him, but not to the person above him, Tiberius Caesar. Impatient, kind of an off-with-his-head kind of guy. And Pilate knows this. He's, Pilate's expendable. And Tiberius isn't the kind of guy who would hesitate to expend him. It was an effective move on the part of the Jewish leaders. It's like they're saying this. Okay, Pilate, you want to let Jesus go? I mean, that's your jurisdiction. You have the power to do that, but... I mean, I wonder what Caesar would think if we let him know that you released, I don't know, a rival king. He'd probably take that pretty well, give you the benefit of the doubt and all that. Tiberius isn't the guy who's going to do an investigation on that. He'll, he'll kill first and not even ask questions later. Right? It's not that important to him. The Jews find a pressure point. Pilate taps out. Verses 13 and 5 through 15 happen very efficiently. It's the public sentencing. Jesus is out there in front of everybody. Verse 13, Pilate brings Jesus out to the official spot to be judged. This public is getting official. They're closing the deal. In the beginning of verse 14, John gives the timing. Right, It's... Uh, there's a reason for this. Probably Friday, the trial is dragged on, of, you know, for if you want to call it a trial. And the reason that John does this is to prepare us for something that happens later. What happens later? Verses 31 and following, they're going to pierce Jesus' side. And there's a reason that they do that. Because Passover's coming up and they've got certain regulations about that. They've got to wrap all this up. They can't leave these you know, dying criminals on their respective crosses, all of that has to be done before Saturday. And so he's setting the stage. Why do they do this? You see, John's going to point out that the piercing of Jesus' side is the fulfillment of Scripture. He's not just throwing this in there. They did it unwittingly, but they did it under the sovereign hand of God. Um, look at verses at the end of verse 14 and, and 15. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. That's what Pilate says, or a few other things, but I'll push through to the point here. He keeps saying, Your king. Your king. There's more irony. Pilate knows he's lost, but he's shoving this in their face. Yeah, this is your king. If he's your king, why are you demanding that he be crucified? If he's your king and you want him to be crucified, how is he a threat to Rome at all? How is this insurrection at all? This is a farce. You see, he's pointing out the reality. He knows it's trumped up, it's exposed, and he's just showing who they are to their face. You know, here's the ironic thing king of the Jews, and they say, he's not our king, we have no king but Caesar, which is idolatry for them, right? It's apostasy if you're a Jew. But the ironic thing is that Jesus really is their king. 
He really is the Messiah Jesus promised to bring. And they don't see him. It's one of the reasons John points it out. You know, the chief priests take on a particular role at the end. He kind of highlights them. When he mentions them, you know, a lot of times he mentions them and he says plainly, like, here are the chief priests operating. But they're almost always implied. And that's who features at the very end. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him, crucify him. Does that in part because John knew that they'd have to answer this objection. So got to go back in time a little bit. What objection would you make if you were a Jewish person and you weren't so sure about Jesus? Well, you'd say, well, wait a minute. I mean, the rest of the world is not looking for the Messiah. We, the Jews, were looking for the Messiah. We had been for centuries. This is what our religion was about. We talked about it all the time. We always ask these questions about it. If anybody was going to spot this guy, it would be us. The whole world might miss him. We would not miss him. How in the world would we have missed him? And John goes, chief priests, jealousy, corruption, and you got a Messiah better than you anticipated. The chief priests gave you kind of a king, that kind of authority that you assumed would just be Messiah would be like David-like temporary ruler. And you got the king of kings. You got the forever king. And you missed it because that's not what you wanted. You know, you wanted the kingdom. You just didn't want the of God part. Passage ends at the beginning of verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Delivered him over. Pilate delivers him over. There's that word again, delivered. Before it had always been the Jewish authorities. They delivered him over. They delivered him over. This time it's Pilate, the Roman ruler. Now the whole world is in on the act. The application of this passage is really just an insight, right? So as we wrap it up, all I'm asking you to do or encouraging you to do is this. Get it. Just get it. See what's here and go, okay, that's true. And the reason I'm saying that is if you do that, it's going to change your life. If you just you take this and it informs your outlook on the world. You ever gotten new glasses? And you put on new glasses and like you kind of flinch at the new clarity of the world that those offer you. Like you flinch, but you shouldn't have. You should have been expecting. Like I didn't see before and behold, you know, the world in all of its clarity. Uh, live like somebody who just found out the truth. What's the insight? Here's the insight that you should take. What this passage does is, is it interweaves the sovereignty of God with the willingness of Jesus to be sacrificed. And it puts them together. Okay? Sovereignty of God and the willingness of Jesus to sacrifice himself, to be sacrificed, and it puts them together. They're part of the same thing. Like you read the passage and you go, well, look, on the surface, it looks like maybe Pilate's in control or maybe the Jews are in control. They're going back and forth. There's some pretty you know, savvy political maneuvering here. You wouldn't know who's going to win if you hadn't read it before. That's the surface. This is what people see. But people don't see everything. They certainly don't see who Jesus is. What the, here's where the text clearly takes you there. Remember, I referred to Jesus like, it's, it's almost like this passage is about Pilate. It's Pilate, Pilate, Pilate. And all of a sudden, Jesus in verse 11 says, in answer to Pilate, where are you from? And why won't you answer me? He says this. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. 
First thing we should point out about those two things, these two things, the sovereignty, you know, the willingness of Jesus to be sacrificed and the sovereignty of God is that we don't intuitively put those two things together. We like put them in separate categories. And if you think about it, it's, it's an obvious thing, right? We, we don't put the sovereignty of God and the willingness to be sacrificed together, but there they are together in the person of Jesus. Right? To be sovereign is what? Well, it's to reign. It's to be in control. It's to have charge over all your subjects, all those people under you. If you're sovereign, you're the highest of the high. That's the highest position. To put yourself out there to be sacrificed is the lowest. And Jesus sits there being both at the same time. Why would anyone do that if he didn't have to? You would have no authority over me, Jesus says. And yet there he said, sovereign and willing to be sacrificed. Here's the second thing. While we don't intuitively put those two together, we see it there together in this passage. Right? It's like Philippians 2 talks about, and he emptied himself, willing to become nothing. Here's the second thing. When you put the sovereignty of God together with the willingness of Jesus to be sacrificed, you see that this is the way of salvation. It shows you something about that. This God is beyond you, right? but he's good. It's better than you can imagine. You don't appease a God like this. He's too precise. He's too good. You have to receive him, and here's why. You ever thought about earning your salvation? Have you ever thought about being worthy of God's acceptance? Well, here's a problem. Uh, unsin. You know, those, those things that you said, those things that you did, uh, who you've proven yourself to be, just undo all of those. Erase those. You can't unsin any more than you can unjump. You know, you can't unsay things. You can't undo things. God knows too much about you. He's too good. You have to receive what Jesus has earned for you. Now, this is how we close. You know what the Bible calls this? So it's, you know, that's the gospel. The gospel is a word that uh, translates good news. So here's the good news. Get this. Salvation is obviously beyond you. You can't get it. But all because of Jesus, it's offered to you. Okay, say it again. Salvation, for somebody like you, it's obviously beyond you, but because of Jesus, it's offered to you. Good news. Right? Are you kidding me? Good news, I could never get it, and yet God, in spite of it, what I've done and all that, he's offering it to me. That is good news. The question is, now that you've heard it, how will you respond? Let's pray. Father, we're inspired by um, who Jesus is, and so we, we see all the chaos of the world and the political maneuverings of two opposing parties looking for power, and it's a joke. It's, it'll all go away. That the sovereign is the one who was willing to be sacrificed and to bear our shame and to bear our sin and to take the bullet for us. I mean, we, of all people, should be most grateful, and we are. Thank you for Jesus. And we pray for our friends here, maybe who are wondering about Jesus, that just, we just ask that you'd turn on the light, that they would see Jesus not the way Pilate did, not the way the Jewish authorities did, not the way that so many others do, but they would see Jesus for who he is, come into the light and come to life. It's in his name we pray, amen.